Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from London and the iconic Savoy Hotel. Joining me now, she's become a regular on the show every time I'm in London. She's from the Daily Telegraph and, of course, handles the travel. Trisha Andres, how are you? Not too bad, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's about that time of the year. People have basically survived Thanksgiving in America. They're, they're about to try to avoid Christmas. <laughs> but what they're really thinking about before they panic mm. is where they're going to go in 2019. Mm. And you and I can share a couple of hot spots. I mean, I, my hot spots, by the way, for last year, meaning for this year, right, for yeah. 2018, were places like the Faroe Islands and Portugal uh, I mean, and, and Rwanda. Yeah. Right. And those and they were hot. You know, we were right. And they're still hot. And by the way, you should still go. But we're coming to a new year. We got in more places. Right. Mm-hmm. Hit me with one. I think everyone's a bit obsessed with um, Crazy Rich Asians. It was the UK, <laughs> both UK and US um, number one in the box office. And the opening scene is this hawker center, you know, kind of those um, eat open, open complex eating spaces in Singapore where you can have everything from um 
chicken, rice and noodles and all sorts of food. And I think Singapore is going to be quite a big hit in 2019. Here's a funny story about that about that movie and gives you an idea of, of stupid decisions. Okay, <laughs> When they were making that movie, the producers went to Singapore Airlines and said, we'd love to have the airline in the movie. And Singapore Airlines said, not interested. So talk about the biggest movie of the year. They said no, so what did the producers do? They created a fictitious airline. And they got all the publicity for an airline that doesn't even fly. Sure people had been Googling what it was. Oh, yeah. I'm sure people try to make reservations on that airline. It doesn't exist. Anyway, that was, well, that was an aside, but I thought I'd mention it, yeah. So, okay, Singapore, which, by the way, if you look at the history of Singapore in the last 20 years, they went from an average visitor stay of about 3.7 days down to 1.2. So now that number is going to come back up. Absolutely. And also, there's a big anniversary coming up. It's the 200th anniversary of the founding of modern Singapore, which means the city state will have lots of different festivals and events coming up in 2019, lots of food fairs. One big one's going to be um, an art fair in January. But beyond that, there's going to be plenty more. The other thing about Singapore, and I encourage my listeners to go out and buy a map, is what a great hub it is for everywhere in Asia. I mean, if you want to go to Bali, it's an easy flight from Singapore. You want to go to Bangkok, it's an easy flight from Singapore. You want to go to Vietnam. In fact, if you really wanted to do it right, you take the train yeah. all the way through Thailand. It's unbelievable. But it's all there. Singapore, that's, that's on your list. Okay, what else? I would say um, for the States, the U.S. lovers, I think Chicago is going to be quite big. I think the funny thing is it's for kind of U.S. audiences, it's quite big anyway. For the Brits, it's not Actually, really... Actually, I take that. I, no, no, I disagree really? with you. Chicago is America's greatest, most underrated big city. I think people, so, too. People tell you they've been to Chicago, and what you find out is they changed planes in O'Hare. They weren't in Chicago. And I, I spent many, many years, as a, <laughs> more than I should have, uh, I mean, only because I was supposed to graduate in four years, I didn't, uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, which is 90 miles you know, or maybe 120 miles away from Chicago. So I got to appreciate Chicago, but most people fly over it. They don't, they don't get it. And it's such an amazing city. And from a food scene perspective, oh my God. And I think, you know, everyone calls it America's second city. I think it's first rate on all fronts. You've got, you know, obviously amazing architecture, um, amazing food. They've got the new opening of the Chicago Architecture Center, in, which is housed in an old Mies van der Rohe building and also houses the Architecture Foundation, where, where you'll find lots of different um, exhibitions, um, both roving ones and also permanent ones. But they also hold the... Um, I don't know if you've done that, Peter, the um, the architecture cruise run by the Architecture Foundation, yes. which is the most brilliant way to see the city, really. Oh, my God. And you can do it on the lake. You do it on the lake. I mean, the, the riverboats yeah, there, like, the, the, the Chicago River, it's great. Not at this time of the year. Yeah. But, <laughs> but starting in April and May, you can do it. I want to talk about something else before we get into to the, to the hot spots, because it's related to the hot spots. And... It's on the tip of every Minister of Tourism's tongue. It's topic A, and that's over-tourism. Um, it is, and the, and the list keeps growing. And as each destination tries to deal with it, whether it's Athens or Venice or Barcelona or Florence, I mean, I, the list goes on and on and on of what they're trying to do to, to either manage it or, or even worse, limit it. 
I think lots of different cities, different countries are finding numerous ways to address the situation. Everything from um, increasing the tourist tax and also um, asking the larger cruise shipping companies to dock in different places, not the city centre. Um, so I think those have really yielded results, but I'm really interested to see what other initiatives they might have to address the situation. I mean, for example, in Florence, they want to pass a bill that will fine you for eating on the street. Uh, there's another bill in Italy to fine you for sitting on the street. How about that? Sitting. Um, you know, and, and in Greece, what they've tried to do is, to, look, they're just trying to manage it. They're not trying to limit it. So what they're trying to do is to work with all their travel providers, the, the airlines, the hotels, the travel agents, to push people to go in November, December, January, February, and March and not have 8 billion people at the Acropolis in July. Yeah, going on the off-shoulder, non-peak season is also a good yeah. way to address um, the issue. Well, it's, I'm not sure it's addressing the issue. It's basically trying to deal with it in a short-term way. Because if you don't address the issue, you won't have, a, you won't have any more short-term. I mean, it's getting so bad. I mean, and when you have Barcelona saying, we don't want to become another Venice, you know, th there's, there's something to be said there. And you've got lots of um, different cities, especially in Spain, trying to block kind of Airbnb, especially with kind of short-term stays, kind of single flat usage. So we'll see a decline in that too. I know. And at the same time, when we talk about over-tourism, Marriott is opening up one new hotel every 14 hours. Hilton is opening up one new hotel every 16 hours. And this is staggering numbers here. And it's not just for the, the, the usual suspect destinations. It's for regional destinations within China or within India for the Chinese traveling there. Not for us, right? But still, every destination will sooner or later be confronted with this issue when you think about you know 1.4 billion people next year in just a month from now who will cross an international border as travelers. That's a staggering uh, amount. It is. And, and, and uh, I'm, I'm going to assume that some of your editorial coverage is going to deal with that because every minister of tourism right now is trying, trying to figure out what do we do because it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Their job is defined as numbers. How many people can we get to visit and how much does the average visitor spend and, and, and how, how, long is they gonna, how long is their stay going to be, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, they're being confronted with this, you know, rule of diminishing returns as they cross that other threshold of too many people. I think in addition to um, tourism boards and kind of cities looking at the problem, tour operators too are addressing the problem by, let's say, for example, G Adventures, which is an American um, Australian-American tour operator, and they're looking at how they can contribute to local communities. So, for instance, in um, in Peru, Machu Picchu, you know, it's we can't really stop people from going, but perhaps if we can divert them a bit and then allow them to contribute to local communities, that's one way of helping out. ask you who the most important person is at a hotel, it's not the general manager. Uh, it's one of two people. It really is. It's the maids, because they do the heroic work 
Um, and they know everything, by the way. They know everything. And the other person who knows everything is the guy at the front door, the head doorman. And I'm joined today by Tony Cortegasa, who's been the head doorman here at the Savoy since 1986, so 32 years. Very good. Now, you yes. heard my introduction. You do know everything because you see everything. Everything comes by you. Uh, well, yeah, we see a lot. And um, <laughs> we think we know a lot as well, but I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but... One of the things that all the doormen tell me is they they can spot it, they can smell it, their instincts are, they know right away if a guest is happy or not happy. They know right away if someone's going to complain, if not complain. They all know, they, they know the cab drivers, they know the good guys, the bad guys, right? Yes. And for people who have not stayed at the Savoy before, they know something else, especially here at the Savoy. You know, Americans think you guys drive on the wrong side of the road, except for one street. Yes. This street. This street. You act, it's the only street in London that I think of, that I know yeah. of, where you actually drive on the right on side the right of the road. Side. That's right. Why yeah. is that? Well, uh, it's Act of Parliament, 1929. Uh, so um, we've done this because, um, we like to say it's because the Queen, when she comes in, the long dress comes in and go comes straight into the hotel. So uh -huh. always, she always sits on the right-hand side. But the real reason is because of the theatre. The theatre was here before And the, the theatre's on the right-hand side. On the right hand side, so it's to in order not to stop the front entrance of the hotel with all the taxis unloaded into the theater. I like the Queen story. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think we'll stick with that one. Yeah, so yeah, but, but it's a reason. It's a it's a good one as well because it's true. She always sits on the right hand side, and she will comes in with a long dress. She used to come Queen Victoria, um, uh, especially used to come in a long dress. She used to come straight into the hotel. And this hotel has been the host to royalty for since day one. More or less. Yes. More or less. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, of course, there's the, there's the old naval term posh, yes. which stu stood for port out, starboard home, <laughs> right? Same thing for royalty. Yes, of course. Of course. We What's the, the uh, other than the wrong side of the road, yeah. or maybe the right side yeah. of the road, uh, how's the hotel changed in 32 years for you? Uh, that's a good question. Well, we, we, uh, it's like the times, everything changed. So we got to modernize, you know, even then you still uh, old traditional hotel. Um, but our clients changed. Nowadays, people don't, don't need as much as they used to need before. They become much more self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. Some people come in and out. We can hardly notice them. Not, not everybody yeah. wants help with their bags. No, it? yeah. People, they don't need as much help as they used to. Before and used by to. the way, you didn't start as the head doorman. You started no. as a kitchen porter. Oh, thank you very much. Yes, yeah. they did. Yeah, that's why I started. Yeah. And in 1986, the Savoy was not known for its food. No, not really. No, yeah. you know, I'm right. <laughs> right? It was the traditional, yes. you know. Yes, yeah, yeah. You could still get kippers. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right? You could. Yes, of course you could. Yeah. I know. But how has that changed? Well, there's another thing as well. The food is has been a big change in the hotel as well. We try to update the tastes of the people. Is is you know nowadays you've got all this uh, vegetarians and all the different things. So we have to up, keep keep up with that. And the other thing that is the long lost idea here is this: it's not just the concierge that gets mm. asked questions and favors. Mm. It's the doormat. Yes. Right. Yep. Whether it's Princess Diana. Yep. Or Frank Sinatra. That's right. I met I had the opportunity to meet both of them for, for a few times, actually. Yeah. yeah. Prince Diana used to come in in her car, drive herself. and um, She used to sneak in. Yes. And, uh, right? She uh, snuck in. Yeah. And just sometimes you had the security with her next to her, but she most of the time's driving and asked me, do you mind park my car? Which I would <laughs> do with great pleasure. Honest. Yeah. Honest. Yeah. And Sinatra? Sinatra as well. Uh, I can tell you a story about Sinatra because he used to go and do a show. Um, uh, in the in Docklands, one of the the big uh, um, show things used to be there. And after that, he used to come to the Savoy. 
after the show, about 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, so hardly anyone in a hotel. He used to go down to the Thames for you. They kept the bar open for him? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. yeah. Def well, definitely, yeah. And um, after a few Jack Daniels... Um, which, was, which was his drink of choice. Yes. We used to, go, we used to have the uh, white piano down in the Thames for you, and sometimes you start playing and singing just for some of your entourage there. So uh, at that time, I was doing night porter. So Good time uh, to be the night porter. Yeah, I know. It's like a... You know, private, a, a private show just for me, you know. Uh, unbelievable. I used to go and listen to him. Honest. I, I met him for about four, four or five years. He used to come for about a couple of months to stay with us. Not bad. No. Was he a demanding guest? Uh, sometimes, yes. <laughs> yes. But very nice man. Very nice man. Yeah. And he wanted his Jack Daniels. Yes. That he, was... he, I mean, but he drank that. I mean, yes. a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah. He, used, he used to like them. Absolutely. <laughs> Basically, you really haven't changed the size of the hotel. No. You haven't changed really the number of the rooms that much. Well, we increased the number of rooms. Right. We, we managed to increase the number of rooms, yes. Right. But the bottom line is, you're still running the door the way you've always run the door. Uh, yes, more or less, yeah. We've got this, more or less the same team. Not since we reopened, we got the same team. But uh, yes, we've got a, a very steady team at the, at the door. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. Joining me now is, uh, we always love to find out you know, what the locals think, but she's more than just a local. She's an expat, an American expat, who started out here as an intern for NBC about the time I was at the Today Show, then went back to school at Florida State, then ended up working at NBC Universal as a VIP tour guide. So she knows all about the rides there. Now she knows all about everything here because she came back to marry her husband. And now she's joining us, Melanie Todd. Also, she's a blogger, and the bloggers and the blog is called Sunny in London, which is a very funny title considering the weather in London. Yeah. Yes, it is. I know, but you're here. I am here. And you came back because because I married a cameraman at NBC News, <laughs> so it's very sunny in London for me. <laughs> Who's no longer a cameraman. No, he's not. He's not a cameraman anymore. But you're here. I am here. And what keeps you here? Him, foremost. <laughs> and the fact that I think London is the most amazing city to live in in the world. I think London offers something for everyone. I mean, for most Americans, they like London because, gee, what a surprise. They speak the language. But it can be a very expensive city. It's it, Yes, it is. It's um, definitely one of the most expensive cities um, I've been told to live in in the world. Um, I've spent most of my life living in Florida so this is the first um, country I've lived in other than the US um, but so I look at this is an extended spring break Yo, I, I, I guess you could you could consider I mean, it when that. you go to when you go to Florida State everything you know revolves around spring break you know it I know it they know it that's true that's true it's true never let school interfere with spring break when you're over here though there are the traditional stereotypical things that people want to see, right? They yes. they they, they got to go see the Tower Bridge. They got you know they got to go see Westminster. They got to go see the Parliament. They've got to go see you know the Palace. They got to go see the changing mm -hmm. of the guard, right? Yes. And to see if they can get the Bobby to blink. Exactly. <laughs> right. But what's new for you here? What do you, what do you, when you write the blog? What are you looking for? I'm always excited by different things that are happening in London and something that's been a phenomenon, I think, for the past five or six years that could be different for somebody who hasn't been to London for a while is the themed afternoon teas. I don't think London has always been known for its cuisine, uh, but I, I but think... But for example, we're at the Savoy. They've been, they've been known for their afternoon teas for a long time, the high tea here or with the Ritz right there on Piccadilly. 
Piccadilly. So what's different about the high tea now? What they're doing now is something different from your iconic traditional tea, something like uh, the Savoy offers to offering themed teas such as um, the different ones I've attended. There's a chocolate-themed afternoon tea. There's a um, Charlie and the Chocolate factory-themed afternoon tea, Beauty and the Beast afternoon tea, <laughs> Alice in Wonderland afternoon tea, and uh, one that my husband really enjoyed was an afternoon tea at the Playboy Club. Um, so there's all kinds of there's different There's still a Playboy Club? There, there is in Mayfair, Come yes. on. No, and they actually, they have a very impressive afternoon tea. And it, did you go with your husband to it? We did, yes. Surprisingly, the, the focus isn't um, Were there tea, bunnies? There were, there were bunnies? We were served afternoon tea by a bunny, yes. <laughs> yes, it was an extraordinary experience. It's retro time here. <laughs> oh, my God. But um, so I think London offers something of for everyone and uh, the themed afternoon teas have been fun well listen you were at a theme park you were at universal right mm-hmm. yes. uh and they have the harry potter ride there it's a whole harry potter attraction yes right yes. They, they built the building there what about the studio where they shot it here um, actually that's a popular question i get on my blog uh and from youtube viewers is um is the warner brothers studio tour worth it if you're a harry potter fan because it is although it is considered london it's, it's swept out there it, it's in watford it's quite a ways so I have one blog post that simply is about how to get there. But I think if you're a Harry Potter fan, when you compare that experience to what you might find in a theme park, the one at Warner Brothers allows you to see actual props and sets used in the film. You get to tour the Great Hall, which is a set. The actual Great Hall um, was in, shot in Oxford. Uh, but you can uh, they have evenings where you can actually buy tickets to have dinner in the Great Hall. So I definitely recommend that as one of the Harry Potter things that you can do in London. As you can imagine, everyone's capitalizing on the, the Harry Potter phenomenon, so there are many things to do. Now, being an American living in London means, but it's inevitable, all your friends from Florida are going to come by and stop by. Of course. Right? Where do you take them? An attraction that I recommend everyone see in London is the Tower. It's popular both with English people, with Londoners. You want to go see the Beefeater, don't you? Yes, yeah, yes, come yes, on. yes. Well, you have a tour with the Beefeater, which is, they're quite humorous, actually, so it's, it's a really interesting experience and like my husband uh, who's from London always says you have to be careful there because you might lose your head your husband known for his sense of humor says well he's British yes uh, so his, that, well, that's as far as yes. it, that's about as good as he gets then exactly tell him I said that <laughs> <laughs> I will but you enjoyed that tour. I, I love the Tower of London, but you, right now... You see now, the jewels? You see the jewels? Yes, yes. I've seen the crown jewels a few times. But uh, right now, I would suggest, in my opinion, the hottest attraction in London, just a bit outside of London, is touring Windsor Castle. Because as you Because of the wedding. Exactly. It's very popular. It's a really wonderful experience. I'm actually um, going to go back and see their Christmas decorations because it's something I haven't done. But a day in Windsor is a very popular activity for both English people and foreign guests. You know, it's funny. I was here for the wedding of William and Kate. And, and, and of course, everywhere you went, they were selling commemorative plates and commemorative this and commemorative... T- you go to Fortnum and Mason, and they have commemorative cookies and biscuits, and, and you buy the tin with their photo on it. It's yeah. ridiculous. They have oyster card passes. Or, or an oyster card is the um, subway. It's the transportation. So, exactly. Sure. But they had, uh, at the time, I, know, I, I have one, an oyster card that has, um, has them on the, on the image. Of course, all the plates that they're selling you are made in China. But that's okay. It's (laughs) the spirit of it. I know. Exactly. And they still do it. Yes, yes. I mean, we have the the royal wedding this year um, in May was um, quite spectacular and I know attracted a lot of American visitors. Oh, yeah. And now when you tour Windsor Castle, right, Mm -hmm. what are you going to see? 
Um, you can see different areas where it's it's considered the queen's weekend home, so you can see perhaps pictures of the corgis. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, you can see where. Um, she, By the way, I'm an avid crown watcher. Oh, okay. Love okay. that show. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the, that's a fantastic show on Netflix. I love the crown. Um, but you can see, like, if you take a walking tour in Windsor, they'll show you the special entrance and exit the queen uses when she wants to drive her car, which she. Um, she still likes to, to drive. She, yeah. do, she does love to drive. So um, I don't know how recently she's driven, but they'll show you um, where she comes in and out of the castle. Something tells me she's not driving herself. If you are continuing on to another southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. Joining me now. A return guest to our show, who's the founder and campaign director of Flying Disabled here in the UK, Christopher Wood. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. For, uh, you know, we, 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 we talk about organizations where people can help. But first of all, you have to identify the problem. And first of all, you know, we have uh, in America, we have the Americans with Disabilities Act, which was passed over 30 years ago by an act of Congress. Uh, and, as, and as well-intentioned as that act is, it's still lacking in terms of enforcement. It's still lacking in terms of, you know, it's one thing to say you've got to ramp places and you've got to make things accessible uh, for people in wheelchairs or for hearing or for sight impairment. It's another thing to enforce it. A lot of the hotels have done a good job. Even the cruise ships have done a good job. But then there's areas where they haven't done a good job. Uh, there's a reason why you have an organization called Flying Disabled, isn't there? Absolutely. I'm trying to um, change aviation. It's the last bastion of travel that is inaccessible in a wheelchair, and we need to address that and find that solution. Indeed, in America, the Air Carriers Amendment Act was signed off on the 5th of October by Mr. Trump. Yes, and it's getting better. But here's my problem, and I see it because I travel so much. If I, I mean, I think they should put Airport managers and airline executives in wheelchairs. Oh, yeah. I think they should. And have them try to navigate an airport. Have them try to navigate a hotel. Have them try to navigate a cruise line. And you would see changes overnight. For example, if you put me in a wheelchair, and I'm assuming that I'm wheeling myself at this point, or even if somebody's wheeling me, and I go to an airline ticket counter, they can't even see me. Right? I mean, it's not at the right height. Um, and that's the beginning of the abuse. Um, there are still airports in the United States that don't have jetways. Really? Oh, you bet. My God. Uh, many of them. Uh, one very close to where I live, and it's called Burbank. And it is humiliating to see how they have to get people who are mobility impaired onto planes using cherry pickers, uh, which are, by the way— That's brutal. It, well, it's, it's, first of all, it's awkward. It's a little dangerous. And here's another thing that the airlines should recognize. It's time-consuming. Oh, yeah. Um, and no guarantees that the cherry picker operator is going to be there every time you need them. Uh, so it's one thing, for example, to ramp a cruise ship. And most of the cruise ships today are, no doubt about it. But here's what drives me nuts. If 19% of the U.S. population has a physical disability or a handicap of one sort or another, why are there only 6% of available cruise ship cabins handicapped accessible? Well, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll go back to aviation because that's my speciality. And as you say, the amount of people around the world that have got a disability and want to travel, that's a whole lot of money. And certainly for aviation, they're missing out on that and they won't do it. However, with the Air Carriers Amendment Act now being changed in the States and the work I'm doing here with our government, so this has got to come from legislation, it's got to come from governments, and it is, because the airlines will not do it themselves. 
All right, so let's talk about the, the new amendment to the Air Carrier Act in the U.S. Yeah. How has that changed? Uh, so in one of those, and I think it's number nine, there is a feasibility study to allow wheelchairs to access an aircraft. So there is a two-year study, and already I've had a phone call from the U.S. government department, um, the DOT. I think right. it's a quaint. Department of Transportation. Yeah, right. yes, but I, it's uh, access for all, and they're reaching out for me for research. So here in the U.K., um, we're doing a lot of research as to how we can make this happen, because clearly a wheelchair has to be safe. Um, so I have a table, not dissimilar to uh, the one we're sitting at the moment, which is a very kind of oblong table, and we sit around there with stakeholders from aviation, government, wheelchair manufacturers, safety regulators to find out how this can be done. And so once we have that solution, then it can be done. And then aviation has no reason, no reason whatsoever to refuse somebody the ability to travel by air. Are they still refusing people? Um, not so much refusing people. They're just kind of... Making it very difficult. <laughs> making it very difficult. I have a vision, Peter, which is because um, we all have a deadline. And we've got Tokyo 2020 coming up, the Olympics and the Paralympics. And maybe, just maybe, we can get our Paralympians and those who want to stay in their own wheelchair to fly into Tokyo 2020 sitting there in their own wheelchair. Already I know, I think there's a car company doing driverless cars for the Olympics, so using that as a flagship. And if aviation can really get to this and find the solution, what a great way to do it. Again, I mean, just for a pure economics of it all, just for commerce, yeah. it's a significant portion of the population, and they spend with their wallets as well. There's just millions worldwide. I, I don't understand the resistance. Well, I do understand the resistance, and they tell me it's margins. Well, find me a business that has great margins. Everybody is struggling in some form or fashion at the moment. All right, Christopher Wood, uh, founder and campaign director of Flying Disabled, I'm going to be devil's advocate now. Please okay? do. I don't know an airline right now that's not adding more seats to their planes. Yeah. I don't know an airline right now that's not reducing the pitch between seats, mm -hmm. narrowing the width laterally across rows. Uh, taking out closets, reducing the size of bathrooms. There are bathrooms right now on the new American Airlines 737 MAX jet where I, as a physically able person, could not get in that bathroom and close the door and be able to wash my hands in the sink at the same time. Absolutely. Uh, and can you imagine the difficulty I would have? It would be impossible if I was handicapped. I don't even think about using the toilet if no. you're disabled. I mean, it's a non-runner. People dehydrate themselves before they're flying. Oh, Already yeah. you're getting people on a plane which are health-wise, they're not 100% because they're going, okay, I can't go to the toilet, so I will not drink two hours before the flight, if not longer, and I certainly will not drink on the flight. <laughs> so if you're adding more seats to the plane, that means whatever dimensions you're talking about, about wheelchair accessibility – just got thrown out the window. Uh, yeah, but there's, uh, there's two things here. First of all, uh, globally, aviation, the fill rate's about 85 to 90%, so that gives me a little bit of wiggle room. And I'm also not asking aviation to clear a space just for a wheelchair in case it goes on. These guys can innovate. They can get 400 tonnes of steel to fly around the sky, Peter. They can have Wi-Fi 30,000 feet up in the air. I know that if we leave those seats there, then we leave them there. Wheelchairs booked, the seats get removed. How that happens, we'll let the innovators in aviation come up with that solution because they can clearly do it. Because if you could actually remove the seats and put the wheelchair in place on the plane, you've accomplished everything. 
Absolutely. And you haven't taken any revenue away? No, we're bringing revenue. And we've got an elderly population now. We are all living longer. Yeah, this summed up to me. I was in Hamburg at a conference, sat next to a guy from Boeing, clearly glazing over when we're talking disability. However, I was about to leave. And he turned around and said, Chris, I live in San Francisco. And my mother still lives in New York. She's had a stroke and in a wheelchair and now refuses to fly. And she doesn't see her grandchildren. I come to her. And I looked him in the eye and I said, are you okay with that? Yeah, give me a card, Chris. <laughs> but I'm a small... He's, he's a small cog in Boeing in a massive industry. Well, look... They I, get I, that bit, Peter. They get that elderly population. Well, they have to. Look, I can make this claim and I can stand behind it that I don't know anybody, right, who doesn't know someone in their family or a close friend who has a mobility issue. Absolutely. Okay? It's, we all do. Oh, exactly. So... What is the problem if you can run the numbers? What, what's the resistance? Is it money? Um, it, margins is always the one that comes at, to me, at me and probably the short-term cost. However, um, there will be a long-term gain. It's, aviation can be a bit short-term on occasion. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Every time I come to London, I'm sort of intimidated. I'm intimidated by so many museums because they're, A, not just the number of the museums, the size of the museums, what they've got to tell, the stories that they have to share. I probably could spend a lifetime in the museum I'm about to mention now. I don't care how many times I go back, I'd never be able to see it all, and that's the British Museum. And joining me now, one of the project curators there, uh, Kareen Harmon, with a very interesting exhibit that's going on now about the king of Assyria, whose name was... Ashurbanipal. And I'm so glad you had to mention that. <laughs> uh, what year are we talking about? Uh, so we're putting up this exhibition at the British Museum uh, about um, Ashurbanipal, who was the last great king of the Assyrian Empire. And um, the reason is, we know so much about uh, Caesar, Ramesses, all these great kings of the ancient world, but we know very little about Ashurbanipal, who was the most powerful man on earth in the 7th century before Christ. And what made him the most powerful man? He ruled the empire, the uh, vastest empire the world has ever known at this time, which went from Egypt to Iran and from the south of Turkey to the north of the Arabian Peninsula. And most people have never heard of him. Um, no, not really. I mean, at least in this part of the world, we uh, we learn a lot about Caesar, Ramesses, and the Egyptians and uh, Greece and Rome, but um, not a lot about Assyria. And when we talk about people who commanded such great uh, expanse of, of, of territory, people are thinking of like Attila the Hun, or they're thinking of, of those guys, but this is even before that, isn't it? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. And how was he able to command all this this land? Um, he had an extremely well-organized administrative system, uh, and he also had a, um, I mean, Assyrian kings before him developed a system of royal roads that allowed people to uh, send messages across the empire in so just he, a few days. So he understood infrastructure better than anybody. Uh, yes, I think so, yeah. Now, he also had an amazing library, didn't he? 
He did. So Ashurbanipal is a very special uh, Assyrian king. He's the only king who knows uh, how to read and write. He um, Well, that's power right there. Yes, exactly. And he collects a massive library in his palace. He sends envoys all around the empire to gather all the knowledge in the world. Um, and uh, this library is not just a library, cozy library where you go and have a book and have a read. It's just it's a library that is a tool for the state. And it's used by uh, Ashurbanipal and his main scholars to make the main decisions uh, that the uh, state has to make. Now, if you visit the British Museum, and, I, and I, I encourage everybody to spend more than one day there because it's just daunting, the artifact collection, the objects that you've collected, I'm not just talking about, about Assyria, I'm talking about in general, mm-hmm. and later, in many later years, even from the Egyptian empire, I mean, uh, all, the, all the different gods and all the different pharaohs, if you will, um, where did these come from? How did you find them? And where were they before you put, the, put together this exhibit? Um, in the exhibition, we have about uh, 300 objects. Most of them um, are British Museum uh, objects. Uh, from Assyria, they come from excavations that happened in the uh, 19th century and early 20th century. So they're already part of your collection. They just haven't really been properly displayed. Uh, yes. I mean, we have uh, galleries of Assyrian uh, reliefs and uh, Assyrian uh, artifacts in the, in, the, in the museum. But in but terms of perspective and storytelling, this, yeah. this is a big deal. This is, yes, absolutely. It's the first time we exhibit the reliefs in the way we are doing there. We're projecting on the reliefs to show people how they were originally colored because the palaces were brightly colored. And today we don't really see that on the reliefs. But in the exhibition, we're showing that. And we're also showing how uh, storylines evolve uh, throughout the reliefs. They're really uh, intricate reliefs where a lot of things happen and you can't really make out uh, what is happening. But thanks to to our new ways of exhibiting them, we can now um, understand a bit more. Well, you know, if you take a look at the release, I mean, that was the, the original storytelling, right? They, they told the story on the yeah. walls. They told the stories on, on the stone. What have you learned about him that you didn't know before? Um, what did I learn about? He was, um, he was trained, actually, originally to be a priest and not to be a king. Um, and he was, uh, so we have in the, in the exhibition li- letters from him uh, when he was 13 that he wrote uh, as a practice. That, is, that in itself actually. is stunning that you have those letters. Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and, and if you see the writing on the letter, you can, you, can, you can see that he is just learning how to write and he's not writing really well yet. Um, so this is extremely interesting, I think. Well, at least in those days, they didn't grade on penmanship. <laughs> So you learn about his development. You learn about his ascendancy. Yeah. How did he stay in power? Um, well, he stays because he um, he's an extremely powerful king, and he wins all these uh, military campaigns across the empire. He uh, fights against Egypt, and he, uh, he he takes Egypt into the empire. Then he fights against Elam in the southwest uh, uh, of Iran, uh, and he also kind of incorporates Elam in the empire. So um, he's just a very... I think people across the empire are as well scared of the power of uh, the Assyrian uh, army and the, and the Assyrian state when Ashurbanipal is on, uh, at its head. Well, you know, there's the old saying that if you don't want to repeat history, you have to remember history. Yep. And, and this is a great way of doing it. It's, it's at the British Museum now. It's uh, I am Ashurbanipal, the king of the world, the king of Assyria. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is $3. The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. Over the seas, 
My next guest knows a few things about this hotel. He's one of the concierges right here at the Savoy, originally from New Zealand, but I forgive him. Uh, <laughs> Jamie McDowell, how are you? Very good, thanks. Very good. Thank you for having us. I mean, there's such history here, but what most American travelers don't still get, they still do not get what you guys do. Americans are just completely ignorant when it comes to what a concierge does. They think it's just about theater tickets. Maybe. Am I right? Uh, partly. Theater tickets is a big component of what we do, but uh, many other queries, many other queries. Uh, U.S. in particular, so we have an international society, Le Clay d'Or, is a big component in the U.S., about 600 members. You'll see perhaps our golden keys on the lapels of various female and male staff across the country. Well, Let's talk about that, because a lot of hotels will tell you they have a concierge or a concierge desk. And what it is, they were, they appointed a receptionist to the poll, post and gave them a hat. That doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. Not necessarily. Uh, many people obviously know cities that they're in. Uh, we have a vested interest in the locations we are and a very good network globally. Um, what, 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 what you guys really shine in is the network globally. Yes. Because at the end of the day, if I say, hey, Jamie, I need something, such and such, you know a guy who knows a guy. I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who knows a lady. Yes. Right. And then you get it done. I get it done. What kind of requests are you getting these days? Beyond theatre. Beyond theatre. Standard ones that you have for restaurants, etc. Directional pieces, but also inside track, what's happening in the city that perhaps uh, some people haven't heard about beyond the standard tourist sites, which is always quite nice. People might just want to do something a little bit different, so an adrenaline rush. Maybe they've been to London many times before. They can do uh, speedboats on the Thames. They can climb the roof of the O2. Okay, stop right now. Speedboats on the Thames? Tell me more. It's uh, various companies. Another one, uh, Thames Rib Experience. They do almost sort of James Bond themed. Um, You're strapped events. in. You're strapped in. The initial part here on the Thames, there is a speed limit. Once they cross the threshold of the Tower of London, off the, they go. Off they, they put go. The, put the hammer down and they're off. Have, um, you, have you done it? I've had the pleasure, yes. It's um, it's a nice thrill. And you see some sights. It's, it's a good combination. Yeah, the sight of you screaming is one mm, of them. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, that, that just double been, checking. That has been filmed. Mm. <laughs> But that's the kind of stuff where you guys shine because people don't know about that. No, exactly. And that, that's why we're here. Obviously, um... Can I tell you what I did the last time I was in London? I've been coming to London since I'm 12 years old. And for the first time ever, I said, okay, I'm going to be a tourist. And I got on the hop-on, hop-off bus. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you something. I loved it. I agree. I agree. We, I mean, I've never done tickets. it before. I had a ball. It's uh, It gives you a great orientation to the city. We have people ask about it every day. It uh, doesn't matter what hotel you're staying in. Everyone has access to it. All, all walks of life will ask for it. Uh, you can see a lot of the city and then go back to something and spend a little more time. But where you guys really score big points is if I came to you, Jamie, and say, listen, I'm only getting to London at 9 o'clock on a Sunday night. I only have six hours on the ground, and I want to go shopping at Fortnum and Mason. You probably could get them open for me. Yes, uh, to a point. We have some good contacts who, um, uh, with me, stores who will assist us out of hours as many of our counterparts do um, and across the world that would be the same thing but if you need something, if we needed someone a restaurant in New York or San Fran for example we're calling our contacts here to see where they'd recommend and where they can help us out. Right, so that's because the you know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who knows a woman and there we go again. I'm done. What's the most, let's keep it legal here, unusual request you've had? Uh, we can certainly keep it legal. Uh a number of different things, uh, two that spring to mind perhaps that are very different. Uh, we had a couple of years ago, a gentleman was looking to propose to his then girlfriend for New Year's Eve. Uh, as he arrived, he came empty-handed and that his ring had not been delivered for various circumstances. You had to get the fake ring? We had to get the fake ring. Um, <laughs> so uh, rather than think too far outside the box and head out of our fine property, we have some great team here, especially in our pastry team. We spoke to them. We created an amazing chocolate ring for them. Uh, he proposed with the chocolate ring. She obviously said yes. We think she enjoyed 
the chocolate more than the diamonds, perhaps. Uh, we had so a, she ate the ring. She, well, we had a small issue whereby, after a couple of moments, the ring was on her finger, finger and chocolate and heat don't tend to mix too well once it's set, so we removed the ring. Uh, the pastry team kindly prepared a second ring, beautifully intact, so they kept both as a memento. Uh, that worked very well. They came back for their first wedding anniversary earlier this year, which was very nice. And then we have something, even just the other day, actually, I received a call from a gentleman in Michigan um, who was trying to find a friend of his. He had lost his uh, mobile number, his cell number. Uh, the only information he had, if you can appreciate, was that in London, his friend lived in a small house a couple of blocks south of the river in the bis- business district. Uh, that was it. That's all that he was had. It. That's all he had. He had his first and last name. It took about 25 minutes, but we managed to track him down. I spoke to uh, a very nice housekeeper who was a bit dubious initially, but uh, we verified that it was the correct gentleman, and uh, we put the two of them in touch. So he should be here in about a month's time to come and stay and see his friend. And he'll get a chocolate ring too. <laughs> Maybe a chocolate Casper, perhaps. Chocolate Casper. <laughs> And yet, there's always the theater ticket stuff. Yes, of course. Um, but the restaurant scene in London is so exploding. Um, I mean, I can't keep up with it myself. Are you guys going out there and sampling the restaurants? We are indeed. We have to, as a matter of course. So we're very privileged that we are invited to many places, but we also have a, a, lot, of, a lot of onus on us to take the initiative and go, which we do. We thoroughly enjoy it. It's what we love. Uh, as you say, the restaurant scene is incredible. Um, chefs want to be here. Uh, high, high, not- notorious chefs want to be here. High-end chefs want to be here. Um, everyone wants a part of London. It's a big market. It's very hard to keep tabs on, but we do our best. But, um, the, but the good news is you have what we, we, we call a preferred supplier relationship with the restaurants. You can get me a table when other people can't. Yes, exactly. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. If you've been listening to the show so far, you know we've been talking about a lot of things, including the exploding restaurant scene in London. And my next guest with a book just out, the new edition of Secret London Unusual Bars and Restaurants, Hannah Robinson. How are you? I'm really good. Well, it is exploding here in London. I, you know, I go back long enough to the days of Julie's Pantry and Wimpy's and you know the, the abominable just fish and chips places. I mean, you want great Indian food, you've got it. You want great Japanese food, you got it. You want great Ethiopian food, you got it. The question is where to find it because every neighborhood's got it now. Yeah, that's right. And the, but uh, the thing that I'm really interested in is places that you might not even find if you're walking along the street. Well, that's that's why you're on the show. Yeah. <laughs> and and places that there are a bit peculiar places that don't have a proper advertising budget or are run by quite eccentric people who aren't necessarily brilliant at marketing themselves. So. They may not be brilliant at marketing themselves, but when you go into these places, you're going to get a great conversation. They're, they're going to be amazing people. They're going to be the place that you're in is probably going to reflect their character. All right, so they're, let's get weird here. <laughs> when you think of London, the first word that doesn't come to mind is fondue. Yeah, so Wallach um, is this great place I discovered uh, kind of over in Shoreditch. And it's not like any Shoreditch place that they don't have a website. He doesn't even have email. You have to text Now, shortage him. for those people who don't know, that's the east side of town. Yeah, it's sort of trendy area. Yeah. So, Wallach, is, he's run by this guy, Luca. He's Italian, not not French. He's um, a rock- rockabilly, and um, he's wears turn-up He's jeans. a rockabilly he, Italian doing fondue. Yeah. S- say no more. And he's got this room that is, you know, the main room is filled with kind of music mem- sort of stuff because he's quite into his rock and roll. But in the back room, he's got a, a room uh, that is dedicated to 
a 1930s French trilogy by Marcel Pagnol, the Trilogie Marseillaise. And so it's got this washing line hanging out and he's decorated it like a port in Marseille. And you go there and the, the you know, the, like, the heating might not be working and the, uh, you know, he may not have, he doesn't have an extensive wine list, but... Now, please don't tell me the cast of Les Mis is there, too. <laughs> no, no. But uh-huh. he makes great fondue. He'll do, and he's really, you know, he personally goes on, makes it for you. And if you want something different and it's not on the menu, he might nip out to the shops and get you it. It's just, it's really fun and peculiar. Now, you've got this distinct Scottish accent. You're from Edinburgh. <laughs> I am. Scottish food has come a long way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, Scottish we, we, food was, Let's get beyond the haggis, can we? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Scottish food was always great. It's just that for some reason, uh, people weren't using the their own ingredients. So, uh, uh, yeah, no, now now people have worked out uh, that, you know, you use your local ingredients. You don't ship it all off to Spain. You, you serve your scallops there. It's, and it's great. It's really good seasonal food it's in Scotland gotten, now. It's turned around 180 degrees. Yeah, yeah. It really completely. has. All right, so we've gone from an Italian crazy guy doing fondue called Wallach. <laughs> what else? Okay, another sort of really place you wouldn't expect to go and eat would be uh, the clink in Brixton Prison, which is you can go and have a meal. Served by prisoners? Served by prisoners, cooked, um, prepared and served by prisoners in a, a running jail. So I'll have the porridge and the mush. What am I what am I ordering there? Yeah, well you might be ordinary. The thing the interesting thing about the menu is that instead of it being described as all cuz it's training up people to work in the hospitality right. industry when they come out of prison. It's brilliant, really brilliant scheme. Well, at least they're rehabbing. Yeah, and, and they uh, and instead of it being described as, you know, the the delicious tastes of the the uh, of the food, you're getting the what skill it trains the students in so you know deboning chicken is a key skill taught in unit 223 and that's why you order that dish and and it's brilliant it's reduced reoffending rates by 50% it gives people you know coming out uh, you know a job they work in you know some of the big hotels some of the big chains look the concept sounds great you want to support it how's the food the food was amazing i had really delicious i had an incredible sea bass with you know with basil did it have a, did it have a screwdriver inside <laughs> it didn't we had <laughs> There was a major security uh, thing in place. You get pa- so this is the one restaurant you get you get searched before you go Yeah, you, you can't you can't take anything except for your credit card. What about utensils? Do they count them? Uh, <laughs> yes. You, is there a knife count? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's 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 all fairly. It's but it's a really it's a beautiful yeah. you know swish restaurant. It's just yeah. inside. Uh, Do they serve building. alcohol? No, they've just got uh, you know like non-alcoholic smoothies. Okay, I understand mocktails. that. No problem. All right, so you had the great sea bass. Yeah, it was really good and uh, on a sort of ratatouille and uh, and we had you know really nice pudding. They, you know, it was well prepared. They all deserved their qualifications, those guys. So this is a concept that works. It is. And there's a, there's a um, one of the bakeries that's in the book is called Dusty Knuckle, and that's for p- sort of ex-offenders. And the great thing about... It's a bakery called what? Dusty Knuckle. <laughs> and uh, they, it's quite hidden, but it's... You know, they, and they train up the, the, the bread and the cakes and everything that they make are amazing, but the staff are people who've been trained up, ex-offenders, people from difficult backgrounds. It's just, it's great when you get that thing of... Because food and cooking can give you a great sense of achievement and self-esteem. Well, going back to the clink, let's be honest, Brixton Prison is famous. Yeah. It's had some of the most notorious criminals in British history. Yeah. To this day. Yeah. So what a great experience that you can have. You're not only just visiting a restaurant, you're visiting history. Yeah, no, it's an extraordinary place to go into. I mean, it's it's terrible in there. But, um, yeah. but you you know, you're going into a special location within it. But you're seeing, you're surrounded by, um, you know, the, the razor wire and, the you know, the, all the... You can see it, but you're very thoroughly escorted. Yes, it's a restaurant with an escort. (laughs) In and out. Yes. 
patrons make reservations and they also get a chance to leave. Yes. Now, there's, there's a restaurant in the Museum of Comedy. Oh, it's not a restaurant, it's a bar. That's great. The, the, so the, the Museum of Comedy is, is quite an obscure museum anyway. It's, it's hidden underneath a church in Bloomsbury in the Undercroft. And it's got... And it's so you have to have a sense of humor just to find it. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. You, go, you go down these steps and then you go through, these, you go through all this memorabilia around you. It's kind of British... Uh, memorabilia and from comedy greats so you know like uh, uh, the pews from this sitcom famous sitcom called Father Ted Spike Milligan's record player Bill Bailey's six net guitar Tommy Cooper's um, props and it's all been assembled by this guy Martin Witz who used to do a lot of their tours and used to make props for a lot of these comedians and he had um, he was going to get married to Leslie, but she said that he had to, as a prenup agree- agreement, she had to, he had to get rid of all this junk that was cluttering up, not just his house. But, and you people want to know why I've never been married. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, so as a prenup clause, he had to create a museum to put all this stuff in. And uh, it's amazing. And you can sit in there and there's, he's got a huge record collection of, um, you know, comedy, vintage comedy he's got the original scripts by lots of the people. You can sit amongst that and have a drink and it's cheap. It's a really good place. There we go. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Come on and fly Prior to introducing my, my next guest, let's I'm going to share with you all a story about my first experience at the Savoy. It was many, many years ago. I landed at Heathrow. It was pouring rain. And a very good friend of mine, a, a photographer for the Sunday Times, who's still a photographer for the Sunday Times, picked me up in an open mini-moke. And it was pouring rain. And we are now driving to the Savoy, where I had a reservation. We arrived at the Savoy, and I looked essentially like a refugee. I mean, I was soaked through and everything. And I got out of the car, and I, I mean, I mean, literally, I was dripping, I mean, oozing water. I walked in a lobby. They took one at me, and, and, and they said, hmm. I said, I had a reservation. And a very interesting thing happened. Um, as I was walking to my room with, with the bellman, and the, the room that they put me in was the size of a cracker box. But as I was walking to the room with the bellman, what I didn't realize was that he was sizing me up, literally. And I tipped him. He left. I went and took a long-deserved shower. And all of a sudden, there was a knock at the door. And I, and I opened the door, and there was somebody from housekeeping with my bathrobe. Oh, yeah, okay, great, bathrobes. My experience up until that point was that hotel bathrobes were one-size-fits-all, and it was never my size. And I, I always, it was like a Tarzan's loincloth. I mean, forget it. Well, I put this bathrobe on. It was the most amazing experience. It was three sizes larger than I'd ever seen. A family of five could fit in there with me. And it had the green Savoy logo embroidered on it. And, and I fell in love with the hotel at that moment. And then I found out the secret. What he was doing was literally sizing me up and figured out I was a, like a, an extra large and went down to housekeeping and said, give him a, a three extra large. And what the hotel had done so intelligently and so brilliantly was to make me feel good about my stay because I suddenly felt thinner. And, and I brought one of my producers, I was then working for ABC, and I brought one of my producers in, and he took one look at the, at the robe, and he was getting married. He went out and bought four suitcases and bought 12 robes from the Savoy for the bridesmaids and, and, the, uh, and, 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 the, and the best men, and they're still wearing them. Um, of course, I still am wearing mine, although I lost weight, and now I look like a bad clown from a circus. So 
as that is an introduction, <laughs> hello, Philip Barnes, the managing director of the Savoy in London. Thank you, Peter. But I'm no, not sure how to follow that, but anyway. Well, no, but, but the point is, you guys brilliantly figured out what guests really needed. They needed to feel good about their stay. Mm. Um, and that one size doesn't fit all. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Do you still um, have those bathrobes? Uh, we have bathrobes of varying sizes. There yes. we go. There we okay, go. I feel better already. Right. Okay. And of course, in those days, you made your own beds. You had your own company here at the Savoy that made your own bed. Savoy beds. Yes. They still make some of them. Unbelievable. Yeah. And they th- still make the beds that go into our, our primary luxury suites. And then, of course, in terms of branding, you've, you've now branched out from the beds and the bathrobes. You've got your own chocolatier here. Yes. Which is scary enough. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty scary. And then you have one of my favorite rooms ever in a hotel, the Beaufort Bar. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, I have to tell you that every time I come back to this hotel, if I walk in and turn left, I'm expecting to see Lauren Bacall. <laughs> I mean, it's one of those, th- right? I mean, it, it's, it's got that. I don't know if you'll see her, but no. you might see somebody else you recognize. I just warn you. Right? I, exactly. But you know what I'm saying. It's, I know. It's got that feeling to it. It does. That, that you, you know, you, you have the American Bar and all that, but this is, yeah. the, you know, that's amazing. It is. It's an absolutely gorgeous room. Gorgeous room. What else has changed here at the Savoy? Oh, wow. I think, Peter, the, the thing you've got to recognize about any uh, hotel of this ilk is that, um, and nature is it's constantly changing. So we're constantly evaluating what we do. For example, in the Beaufort Bar, the, the team's very proud right now. They've just rolled in um, a whole new menu um, into the lounge, which is called uh, Music, Drama, and uh, what was the other one that's gone from my head? It was there a second ago. But anyway, it's just they're constantly looking to reinvent themselves through what they do and how they do it. Um, and those things occur. We now have, for example, every night in the Thames foyer, which is right outside the Beaufort Bar, we have live music there every night from 8 o'clock in the evening. Um, and so when you start to come into that whole area of the hotel that in the past was relatively quiet, it's now become the center of the universe. And there's people sitting having drinks and dinner at 9 o'clock at night, and there's music and there's entertainment, and it's just all come to life. Well, when I first came to the Savoy, the menu was basically meat and potatoes. Yes. And that's changed radically. Yes, yes, yes. Our culinary team now is, covers every, <laughs> every angle of the globe. And, uh, of so, course, you still do a mean high tea. And we, high tea is, is still the most important uh, component of the day from a food and beverage standpoint. Yes. It's people, absolutely packed. By the way, people prepare to, for high tea. Yes. I mean, right? I mean, yes. it's, it's an event. It, it is an event, and, and, you, and it's on people's bucket list, and they come in here, and as we head now towards that time of the year, you literally see people coming through the door, and there's mother, father, there's children, there might be grandparents. Oh, we're talking extended family. Oh, extended yeah. family. And, and everybody on their best behavior. Everybody on their be- and on the, everybody on their, in their best dress. Yes. Especially dad, who's been forced <laughs> to wear a jacket and tie, and he's going to sit there quietly for an hour and a half, because he knows if he speaks, he's going to be dead meat. <laughs> Fargo, Minnesota, Buffalo, Toronto, Winslow, Sarasota, Wichita, Tulsa, Ottawa, Oklahoma, Tampa, Panama, Madawa, La Paloma, Bangor, Baltimore, Salvador, Amarillo, Tokyo. On second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. I've been everywhere, man. Across the desert, spare, man. I breathe the mountain air. I've been coming to the Savoy, as you heard earlier in the show, since 1972, but I've actually been going to their bar just about the same amount of time. The American Bar. Uh... That bar has been around in its current location since 1903. So uh, we're talking some serious years here and some serious stories. And joining me now, the uh, the head bartender from the American Bar, uh, Max Schulte. How are you? 
Very well. Thanks and you just come over from Macau. Yeah, previously it was in Macau, yeah. So three months roughly now in London. So a, a big immersion for you. Well, yeah, let's say they're quite different, the places from each other. I mean, look, this is, the bar that you're working is the longest surviving bar in London. That's correct. Right? And, and, and one of the best known, right? Yeah, we would well, like to think so, yeah. Okay, what makes it special and how has it survived this long? I think, you know, um, the American bar without the Savoy Hotel obviously would not exist. If the doors of the Savoy Hotel close, the doors of the American bar will close. And um, I think the success of the American bar is connected to the success of the Savoy. Um, It has been doing really well and has made a name for itself since the opening. Um, You were just named what? Hotel Bar of the Year this year? uh, Yeah, Tales of the Cocktail. We were fortunate enough to, to get a nice plate. Um, and, you know, to get the honors. Um, I think the American bomb has, you know, has been around for this long because, nowadays we say because of the history, but I think because they've always attracted the right people to work there. And people then, like Maxim Schulte? Well, well that, I hope so. <laughs> I, I, will still, I will still have to prove myself, but, you know, previous, uh, previous people who worked here, they have they proved that they can deliver the best service possible. And obviously, um, we are benefiting from the VIP clientele that comes into the Savoy. There's such history in that bar, just just the black and white photographs that that were taken by Terry O'Neill alone of everybody who's been in that bar. Yeah, it is, um, you know, for me, as I'm I'm the new guy, if you want. Uh, yeah, but I still walk in there and look at the wall. I mean, my God. Yeah, you know, Judy Garland, listening. Elizabeth Taylor, David Bowie, Peter Sellers, Sinatra, Dudley Moore, who used to play the piano in that bar. Um, and, and, the, and the list goes on. Ava Gardner. Yeah, it goes Before on and, on. and after she was the Frank Sinatra, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it goes on and on. It's quite, um, it's quite unreal uh, when, you, when, you, when you listen to all these stories. And I think I've maybe listened to 10% of the stories that, are, uh, that happen in that bar. Um, it is sometimes a very strange feeling when you, know, when you finish a long shift, for example, and then you just sit there after the debrief and you look at the picture and you think, you know, I might be sitting in the chair where... David Bowie was sitting. Exactly. Or, you know, there's the piano where Frank Sinatra played on. It is legendary, actually. You know, it's a certain sense of home for Americans visiting London to go to that bar simply because they want to feel associated with that history as well. I think it's great, you know, and um, especially our our new menu um, that was launched in April that features all the Terry O'Neill photography. There's so many stories to tell, and I think... Because most of these actors or celebrities that we have on our wall in the pictures are American, for all our American guests, this is just you know witnessing a bit piece of history or maybe a story that they haven't heard about. Um, and obviously, the name nowadays attracts a lot, um, you know, our guests from from the states. Sure. They're looking for common ground. But now, what are we talking? Uh, look, the, the bar doesn't exist without its menu. The bar doesn't exist without its signature drinks. That's correct. Do you have a signature drink at the bar? I would like to say the American bar has signature drinks, obviously, of every single menu that, that was published. But if you see it as, as a big picture, since the opening, there are possibly two to three signature drinks. The Which hen- are? The Hanky Panky. The what? Right? Hanky panky. Everybody's asking the questions. The what? The what? Well, uh, I, I did the it first, too. The first time you, the first time you hear it. Um, yeah, it's made by Ada Coleman, um, and it's you know one of those classics that has been around since yeah early 1900s. What's in it? Um, we have equal parts of gin, sweet vermouth, and a little bit of Fernabranca, and it's all stirred up, served straight up in a with an orange twist. Uh, then you have the corpse reviver number two. The what? Corpse reviver number two. <laughs> 
Okay, explain that, please. So, um, yeah, well, um, it's, it's basically something, it, it picked me up, right? After, let's say, you had a, a really, either really long day or really heavy night out, that's something that gets you started. And what's in that? So it's gin. We're back to gin again. Gin again was the spirit of the time. So it's gin, lemon, um, contro, and at the early stages, quinoa lile. Nowadays, we can use lile. Um, and a little bit of absinthe. Absinthe is back. Yeah. And the third? Would be the famous white lady, made by Harry Craddock, which is gin again, <laughs> um, fresh lemon, uh, contro, and egg white. Wow. And people are still ordering it. Yeah, I mean, people come to the bar only because they want to have this drink at the place where it was created. And soon some of the drinks were created over 100 years ago. And you're still, you're still making them? Still making them, still making them from the original recipes that we have. Amazing. Maxim Schulte, the head barman at the American Bar here at the Savoy. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.